Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, uh, a founder that has done it so many times that I kind of like lost track how many times he's been a founder. So I think that we're going to find this quite inspiring. I mean, he's a, a basically launched companies that did an IPO that went and, and were listed on NASDAQ, other companies where he retired from them and then he came back and did a massive turnaround and and. And again, you know, building, financing, you know, exiting, you name it. You know, he's done it all. And I am sure that you're all going to find his journey quite remarkable and very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rod McGregor. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So born in the Highlands in Scotland, how was life growing up? Give us a walk through memory lane. Oh, uh, well, I started off in what's called council housing in Scotland. So that's projects in America. Uh, the toilet was at the end of the garden. So pretty basic stuff. And also your dad was, um, was, a, was a truck driver. I mean, obviously working, working class, you know, folks. And, and you know, that didn't stop you from, uh, from really knowing that you wanted to get into problem solving, computer science, you know, which you ended up studying. So... What got you moving? And how, and I guess, you know, were you the first one that went to university from the family or tell us about this? So actually, I'd say my background was the inspiration for keeping me going. Um, we, we didn't re really have anything, but the assumption was that we could do anything. My parents told me you could do anything you wanted to do. And I believed them. And I continue to believe that, that, that there are no real barriers. Um, it was one of the nice things, though, about switching from the UK to the US especially to the West Coast, Silicon Valley, in the uh, early 90s. Uh, it, it was and still is very much a meritocracy. If you have an idea uh, and you have determination, you can get funded and you can build a business. In the UK, it's much harder. There's still, uh, at least back then anyway, there was still very much a class overlay. Uh, and so it was very difficult for son of a truck driver, working class lads to get funded in the UK. Now, it was possible. I did two startups there. But it took a lot longer and it was a lot more difficult. Oh, so, totally um, yeah, so that was the, the early days. I mean, in, I'm, I'm from Spain too. So obviously, you know, there is if your dad or your mom knows the whatever person, then, you know, that person will pick up the phone. If not, there's always going to be like assistant that is going to be blocking any type of call or email. So Exactly. And, and you know, did you go to this school? You're a member of this club? There, there's a whole, um, and I'm sure as in Spain, you know, we all have accents and your accent places you. I'm very transatlantic now, but at the time, I sounded very much like a, a wee boy for the islands. <laughs> well, well, in your case, you know, obviously incredible drive, incredible ambition. You did your computer science degree there in the University of Glasgow. And then from there, you worked at the United Nations. Now, one thing that is very interesting is you went from the United Nations to startup land. And then obviously, you know, like you never left startup land. You, you got hooked. So what got you in first place into the venture world? Into the venture world. So um, it's an interesting question. The, the, the job at the UN was on an IBM mainframe, which uh, back then was pretty much the way all computing and businesses was done. And the brand new thing was the IBM personal computer. 
And um, the thing that the PC created was a market for software. Suddenly, you could have mass-marketed software. And the pro products at the time were things like spreadsheets, Lotus 1, 2, 3. But they only ran on the PC. So if you were a computer maker and you didn't have the Intel Microsoft architecture, you didn't have a business. And so we created software that let IBM PC software run on pretty much any hardware, whether it be mainframes, whether it be workstations, whether it be the Macintosh, which was just out at the time. So that was kind of the inspiration to start the, the new business, which was in the UK. Um, took us a while to get that one funded. We wound up um, being funded by various elements of J. Rothschild and co. And this ended up uh, going public. This was Insignia, Insignia Solutions. Now, exactly. how do you go from like building this company there in, in Europe to all of a sudden you're listing this thing on NASDAQ and doing an IPO? I mean, that's, that's quite remarkable. The challenge was back then in the 80s, there's no IPO market in the UK, certainly not with the technology premiums you, you see now. So we had a US subsidiary, which um, actually had the bulk of the headcount at that time. So we flipped it. We made the US subsidiary the parent company, and then we took it out of NASDAQ. That was the, uh, the path there. Uh, because I, I, you're, you're correct that, that that type of entrepreneurship uh, wasn't really in existence in the UK at the time. And we were recognized actually by the Queen. We got a, a, an award for export achievement, and an award for um, technology achievement. Just, just noting the very few UK companies in the 80s were, were doing the sort of things that we were doing. And what, what, what were you guys doing essentially? What was the business model? How were you guys making money with Insignia? We made money in two ways. The first one was if you were a computer manufacturer, uh, you would pay us, and uh, I can remember now, uh, this is back in, what, 86, the, the price was a million US dollars to port our translator to your machine. So for a million dollars, you could now get access to the IBM PC library. And then there was a licensing fee for every machine you sold with our software bundled. We got a, a, a small fee. That was one way. The second way was that we sold software at retail. Now, there was no downloads in those times. People go to a software store or go to mail order and buy software. And there was a, a chart, like the um, chart for music. And um, the product there, which was called SoftPC, went into the Metacell Top 10, which is the software charts. So we were in the top 10 of software being sold uh, for, for the Macintosh at the time. So that was kind of exciting. It was a very different uh, thing than you know working at the United Nations. <laughs> now, now. Tell us about doing the IPO. I mean, what a what a what an achievement! How how was it like going public? You know, during those days. So I I was not that involved in it. You know, I was the founding technical guy, so the finance guys, the management often took care of all that. It was not really my. But obviously, you know, when you see your baby, you know, going public, yes. you it also feel the emotions too. Definitely, I'm a, a moment of pride. I mean, that was that was very exciting. So in your case, as an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So then you started IBS, uh, which also, you know, had a nice uh, outcome. You know, it was acquired by Nobel. Uh, now, now in this case, um, everyone was happy with the outcome. What were you guys doing there, and what was the lesson that you took away from from that experience? So, in those days, if I wanted to move a file from one computer to another, I would copy it onto a floppy disk, and I'd walk down the corridor and I'd put it into the other machine. Networking was in its infancy. 
And so we developed software which let, uh, essentially enables file sharing between computers, which now we just take for granted that you can open information which is not on the physical machine you're sitting at. We do it all day. The cloud, the web, um, you know, all of that didn't really exist at that time. And so we, we built some of the basic enabling software which made that possible. And um, the leader in that field at the time was Novell. So we were focused on the Macintosh. We had a very user-friendly approach. Novell were focused on the PC, much bigger market, of course. And they were very much the leader. They were like a billion-dollar company in the late 80s. And um, they wound up acquiring us. And obviously, this, uh, this was an amazing you know, transition moment for you, too, because you ended up landing in Cupertino. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that was pretty life-changing for you because now you had also the, the American you know, drive and way of doing things, the American dream and, and so forth. So how do you think that that changed your perspective? Well, from the earliest days of studying computer science, I was reading papers from Xerox Park, and Park is the Palo Alto Research Center. And I had no idea what Park was, where it was, and what Palo Alto was like. Um, so I imagined this high desert plateau. That's what the name sounds like, little adobe huts. But of course, when you get to Silicon Valley, it's nothing like that. So there's a little bit of uh, culture shock. Um, Insignia was based in... in uh, in, in High, High Wycombe, and then IBS was based in Windsor, so not exactly the sunniest part of the planet. And I remember uh, when I was commuting in the beginning before I moved, I was sitting on the freeway in the UK with grey skies and rain drumming on the, on the car, feeling quite miserable. And a week later, I was on Highway 101 in California, also in traffic, stationary, but the sky was blue, and the, the feeling was just completely different. And at that time, it was a very optimistic place. You know, it was very much a sense that everything was possible. Uh, I don't feel it's like that these days, but back then, uh, it was very much the land of opportunity. So how do you think that that shaped the way that um, you started your next company? You know, your next company, On Life Technologies, you know, started as a rocket ship. So I guess, uh, what, what were you guys doing there? And how do you do things differently from what you did, you know, with your previous two companies? Um, so the scale was radically different and the timing was radically different. So to get the two UK companies off the ground took six to nine months of calling on doors to try and get somebody to back us with relatively small checks. But in Silicon Valley in 1994, when uh, multimedia was new, the internet was just becoming uh, to the fore. I think it took us two months. We started in November, we got a check in January. Two months with Christmas in the middle. Um, to get funded, and it was a pretty big check, I remember. It was $4 million. Um, And it was very much a feeding frenzy. You know, we, we, were, um, we were two founders. We'd had a track record of successful exits. We were leaving Novell, the leader in the field, so it was a very, very different experience to cold calling. There's something called the National Venture Capital Association in Britain, and they publish a directory. Back in the day, I got the directory and I started at A and I just started calling. Uh, so cold calling for money is like soul destroying. Uh, so this was totally different. It was all about networking. People knew who we were. Uh, it, it could not have been a more different experience. So then, so then in this case for you guys, you know, now that uh, you're networking, you have a, a few, you know, exits, you know, also under your belt. 
I'm sure that this was very, very helpful. I guess, how were the, uh, because you guys raised quite a bit, you know, 30 million bucks. Uh, obviously, it sounds like the timing, you know, was not the right one. But I guess the, um, first and foremost, what were you guys doing there, you know, on, with online technologies? Well, it's, it's, I can say it in one word now. It was a metaverse. So back in the in the early 90s, no one had, had really, it was in science fiction, but it was not in the popular mind that the metaverse could exist. So our idea was to create a 3D immersive world where people could communicate with each other. The key enabling technology there, apart from 3D rendering, was uh, voice over IP. So the fact you didn't need a telephone line to do what we're doing there, that you could speak, you could be digitized, it could be sent to the other end, it could be decoded. And our addition to that was uh, essentially conference calling. You can have five or six people all talking, and it would do the mixing and rebroadcasting that that uh, a conference switch would do. So now with Zoom and, and everything, we take all that for granted, but in 1994, that was cutting edge technology, especially as the processing power we had access to, which felt amazing at the time, was like, I don't know, what, a thousandth of what we have access to now. So so how do you think that the, um, I mean, you guys had all the bigger, the bigger guys, you know, backing you. I mean, you had people like uh, Kleiner, you had SoftBank. I mean, you had like some serious guns, you know, when it comes to, investors how how were you you know as you as you would point this you know it would be like a smoking crater you know it, it, the company didn't make it so why when you have like these resources and these people backing you what happened it was a very interesting end and it wasn't the one that you would expect um so basically we were doing really well from a number of subscribers point of view but as like many internet software companies at the time, we had no way of making revenue. We hadn't figured out how to make money yet. And there was another SoftBank portfolio company uh, that also was doing virtual worlds, as we called it back then. And they said, I'll tell you what, we'll acquire you. And they acquired us for some ridiculous amount of money um, or, and stock. So the two companies merged. And the company that acquired us went pop like a year later. Um, and so the stock become worth zero. An interesting anecdote along the way is that um, Microsoft tried to acquire us. And uh, given all the internet hubris at the time, we said no. And they offered, I can't remember the exact number, but it would have made my co-founder and I millionaires many times over. And uh, we said, no, no, it's the internet. What could possibly go wrong? We're going to be billionaires. Um, and, and so we turned Microsoft down. And shortly afterwards, Bill Gates' personal uh, money foundation at that time contacted myself and my founder and said, we know you want to go sell a whole company, but Mr. Gates would like to buy your common stock, your founder stock. And uh, my co-founder said yes, and I said no. Uh, and, uh, you know, so he, he became uh, very rich very early on as part of that process and so in my stock that I held on to become worth nothing so if you're a founder uh, something to think about is uh, you know if there's money on the table take it I mean there is a lot of value to cash now as opposed to you know potential cash in the future so that's that's interesting why the common stock why would he want to buy the common stock you know versus maybe like doing like a like a different blend of, of a transaction why the common stock especially from a founder yeah, so there's a whole now there's a whole cadre of companies which do this. They do secondary transactions, 
where they'll find people who currently own stock in a company and they will they will buy it. And back then, it was less developed market. It was a pretty smart move. Uh, you're behind the preferred stock in terms of liquidation preference, but usually the founder owns a pretty big chunk. And uh, in this particular case, I think when they, they thought highly enough of it to try and buy the whole company, and when that didn't happen, they probably correctly assumed that was uh, that the investor didn't want to sell out. And they thought, well, maybe the founders do, and we can still participate. So that was um, the, the logic. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then tell us, tell us when, when all of a sudden, you know, like this company, you know, you were coming from successful, you know, transactions that you had done with your previous companies. And now this is the time where you need to face the music, you know, with a different beat and um, obviously not not fun and not a nice, uh, you know, uh, unfolding of events that happen. So how was that for you, you know, to really experience, you know, the downside of, 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 of I would say, an outcome, you know, like that for the first time? The start startup land is very much a roller coaster. Uh, there's incredible highs and incredible lows. And you just can't let it get to you. You have to um, maintain your inner optimism. And I think if you don't have that, you find it very hard to function in the venture world. Um, in my particular case, it's uh, self-confidence, verging on arrogance. It's just like, okay, that one didn't work. I'll do another one, and I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, so pretty irrational. But, but I think if you don't have something like that, uh, it, it could emotionally be very brutal. If you get into the, I mean, we, we all learn lessons. You look back and say, well, what could I have done better there? What lesson should I really take away from this? If you do that, then it's very much a positive experience. But if you start self-doubting, what was wrong with me? Why can't I make it? Those sorts of things. That could be soul-destroying. Um, so fortunately, I'm lucky enough not to suffer from that particular. So nano, nano muscle was the next one. So, um, you know, obviously Nano Muscle, you know, it was, um, it was an outcome where you got a, a stock um, acquisition there. So 
what did you learn from Nanomaster? What were you guys doing there, and what was the outcome? What the lesson that you took for, for, with it from with you? Uh, so Nanomaster was making a miniature motor for uh, various industries, and the thing I learned there was uh, new cultures because most, not most, all of the manufacturing and most of the headcount was in China. So I relocated to Hong Kong um, with a factory just across the border, and um, learning a new culture and a new way of doing business was uh, eye-opening to me. In the West, business is transactional. We're here for a transaction. We make the transaction, and that's it. In China and most of the East, business is relationship-based. The relationship is more important than the individual transaction, which means you can't fly in and fly out and do business. You have to actually build relationships over time. And so, so that I found that really a really interesting way of doing business. Um, so that was one of the one of the um, learnings. Another one was uh, it was an accidental startup. So at the time, you know, I'd, I'd done okay in the previous startups. I wasn't wealthy, but I didn't have to work particularly, and I had kids by then. And I thought I'd make for the kids a little uh, pet robot thing that could move, uh, just tinkering in my lap. And uh, I tried putting motors together with batteries to make this thing move and realized, oh, it's going to walk. It needs to carry its own batteries. So I need bigger motors. Oh, I need bigger batteries now. And the, the thing became the size of a shoebox very quickly. It was not a little cute thing. So then I thought, okay, well, these motors have to get replaced. How can I do that? And working with... Um, some contract engineers came up with what was the, what became the nanomuscle, the shape memory alloy actuated motor, which you move smoothly and silently and animate a little thing. And then somebody said, uh, you know, if you've got a motor that uses a fraction of the powers, a fraction of the size, you know, you, you could probably make a business out of that. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I suppose I could actually. I really thought of that. And, and then the company was born. Now, now there, you know, obviously it ended up being a stock transaction. You know, I'm sure that you learned quite a bit, but uh, that actually, you know, put you into, you know, you, you decided after that transaction to kind of like go into semi-retirement until you watched the documentary from Al Gore, An Inconvenient Truth, and that really got you on the path that you're in now. So tell us what, what changed when you, when you saw that and, and what were the immediate steps that you took in order to bring, you know, your current company to life? So I think you can be... Um comfortable not working but it's not very fulfilling at least for me and so i think subconsciously i was looking for a mission ideally something that could make a difference and an inconvenient truth was all about climate change which we all are very aware of now but um you know in 2009 2008 it wasn't quite that well known um but it looked very much like an engineering problem which could have engineering solutions and um uh i had uh, co-founder from Nanomuscle had stayed in touch with and uh, he'd seen it at roughly the same time when we got talking about, you know, we could do something about this and that's what got uh, Glasspoint off the ground um, it was uh, inspired by him, I'll fast forward a little bit to close the loop because you know, we grew very quickly and we deployed at a very large scale, mostly on oil fields, because if you look at who the biggest emitters are, it's the oil and gas industry so we end up providing solar solutions which reduce emissions in oil and gas. And as a result of all that activity, the World Economic Forum, um, you know, uh, recognized as a technology pioneer. We got invited to all these events. And at one of them, he sat me down next to Al Gore. 
And I thought, this is great. I can tell him that he inspired the whole thing. So I was very happy and I told him the story. And he looked at me appalled and said, you use solar for producing oil? That's terrible. <laughs> so he did not approve at all, which is kind of ironic as he got his going in the first place. But yeah, so that, that was um, the transition into Glasspoint. And then, and then with Glasspoint too, I mean, I guess uh, for the people listening, you know, why don't you summarize, how do you guys uh, make money? It changed. So the company is a restart. The original company had a different business model. Its business model was essentially selling solar equipment. So an oil company would say, I need this much energy for my oil fields. Build me a solar array, it does that. And we had a proprietary form of solar that we would deploy, and they would pay us for it. So a typical transaction would be you know, $600 million to build something over three or four years. And when you were finished building it, you would hand them the keys they would own and operate. So that was the business model. There's good things about that business model. Lots of the values front-loaded, and the numbers get very big very quickly. The downside is that there's no recurring revenue. You've sold your solar field and you're done. And there's a gap until you get the next deal. You've got a company, you've got a burn rate, you've got nothing coming in. So our new business model doesn't do that. We sell steam as a service. We project finance the solar arrays with den equity from the outside. And we sell the customer steam on a 20-year contract. And there's lots of advantages to that. To the company, we get return, recurring revenue, so it's very stable. And even if next year you made no new sales, you still get revenue. But as you do get more sales, it's like a layer cake you're building on top. So very predictable. And from a customer's point of view, he doesn't have to allocate capital to the project. So if, when you get into talking hundreds of millions, customers often say, well, what else can I do with that money? I could drill more oil wells. I could invest in my, my mining business. There's lots of things I could do with my, that money. So you compete for capital. But today they buy gas to make steam. So now instead they just buy renewable steam. So it's a very easy transition. And what that does is it accelerates adoption. It means that they will buy it quicker than if they had to allocate the capital themselves. So that's how Glasspoint makes money now. Now, obviously, you know, eventually the, the company needed professional management. And uh, this uh, kind of like uh, invited you to retirement again. So walk us through what were the sequence of events there that happened? And then also, eventually, funny enough, you got to call back to, 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 to come back and take the reins again. So what happened? Um, I think, and I was in this category when I was starting companies as the CEO, I just assumed as my company, and I would always be the CEO. And of course, that almost never happens. The fact that the, uh, the likelihood the founding CEO has the skill set to manage a very large business is pretty low. Uh, and, the, and it's not your company, it's owned by the investors. And so I, I think a recognition that that's the case it would, would help entrepreneurs to, to, to know that I'm probably not going to be the CEO when this thing goes public or gets acquired. Um, despite what the the, the early venture guys might tell you that's almost certainly not going to happen. Um, you know, even some of the Google, you know, they brought in Eric Schmidt very early on to provide, you know, adult supervision as they like to call it. Uh, so that is the backdrop. Um, it happens in most startups. In this particular one, we went from zero to 100 million in revenue in three years. So it was a pretty uh, steep curve from first revenue to 
And uh, they said, you did a great job, Rod. Well done. You're a startup guy. Time to step aside and let professional management take over. And I did not agree. I didn't think that was the right timing for that. With my experience, I knew it was going to happen. And I wanted it to happen because, obviously, I want the company to be successful. And people who run big businesses are not startup entrepreneurs. But I thought the timing was wrong. So we disagreed on that. And I think the advice I'd give to anybody facing a, a similar thing is um, have that conversation long before that occurs. So stay in touch with your investors, stay in touch with your board, talk about that transition even before they think it's something that's going to happen. So you can agree on two things. One is um, when it's going to happen, what stage is the business at so that you're all seeing it the same way. And secondly, what your plans afterwards as, as, as the founding CEO. Uh, that way, you won't get um, what I came to call the night of the long knives, where you got, you got a board meeting out of the middle of nowhere, and the subject is that you're no longer the CEO. Uh, you know, that's the way you want to avoid. You want it to be much more controlled than that. Um, so, so, yeah, it, that was, if you talk about roller coasters, that was actually harder than a, a company failing. The company doing really well, and you're getting kicked to the side. That was, that was emotionally quite tough. Do you think that if you would have stayed on, uh, maybe things could have been different and, and this professional management would have not destroyed, you know, the, the 400 million enterprise value that you guys had at the point? It's unknowable, isn't it? I mean, uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm pretty arrogant. I like to think so, but you never really know. Yeah. You don't know what would have happened. Um, but at least if that happened, I would have owned it. You know, yes, I made that mistake. Yes, that happened. Yes, I learned from it. So it's very frustrating that, that, Somebody else was at the helm when it happened because you feel so out of control. So then what happened when you received that call, you know, hey, Rod, we need you back? <laughs> well, it wasn't quite uh, expressed like that, although it wasn't too far off. Um, well, a couple of years have gone by. The business had been dormant for two years, no employees, no customers. And I thought the chances of resurrecting it would be incredibly low. And so it'd be a full term. We might be able to raise money, but the business would not get restarted. And what turned me around was there was a particular customer of the predecessor company who really wanted to proceed. He really wanted to go ahead. And he had contacted excuse me, the investors, the people who are doing liquidation, everybody he could think of to try and find a way of continuing to, to do his project. So I thought, oh, Okay, that's that's interesting. There's a customer who wants to keep going, and so that's what caused me to say, "Yeah, okay, I'll I'll jump back in the ring." And so what happened again. next? What happened next? Well, the original institutional investors um, didn't fund in the end. They said they would, but they didn't. So I put my own money in, acquired the IP of the predecessor company, and got it started. Uh, then raised nine million dollars to get to where we are now. And what that did is it led to the announcement of what will be the world's largest industrial process, solar industrial process heat system ever. It's 1.5 gigawatts, so 1,500 megawatts. Uh, it's seven square kilometers of, of project. It will reduce emissions by 600,000 tons of CO2. It's a mega project by any measure. So uh, down to zero and then up oh, the other side. Back up, back up, back up, back swinging. Now, now, let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Rod, and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
Where we've made a measurable difference to emissions, I mean, the whole reason we started this in the first place was not economic, it was to make a difference to climate change. And that's still very much what, what fires not only me, but the rest of the team in the morning is that, you know, we, we, we want to make a difference. We, we, we want to reduce CO2 emissions. And so if we were actually managed to do that, I think we'd all feel satisfied. To be a sustainable company, though, you do need economics. So you, you do have to be um, economic from your customer's perspective and from your investor's perspective. So in other words, you do have to make money, but that's not the reason you do it. You know, that's the thing you need to do to get to the reason, but that's not the reason you do it. Um, so, so, yeah, very, very much driven by the, by the outcome, the climate change outcome. Now, imagine that uh, I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you were still in the United Nations and you were okay. able to give that younger Ron one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why do you know what you know now? Ah, gosh, yes. Um, so I, I think I'd say never give up. So I think perseverance is the key. I think that's um, more leads to better results than intelligence, education, anything you can think of. Perseverance just seems to be the thing that, that uh, makes the difference. So, Rod, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening that are really inspired that they that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Send me an email. It's very easy. It's rod at glasspoint.com. And uh, I, I live on email, so I, I actually do actually read my own email. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Rod, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.